0: Hello, and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville, who's out in the Shenandoah, and I'm Al Hunt here in Washington. We are proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University in Washington, and someday we hope to get back to that studio. We have a couple great guests this week, but I want to first thank you all for who have been writing your opinions and questions on email. I hope we get to answer most of them. We love that you're interacting with us. Remember to tell your friends about the show, and please subscribe, rate, and review Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts. Now to our guest, Jeff Garren. There's a small group of American pollsters that are reliably accurate and always honest. A number were trained by Peter Hart, uh, Ann Selzer, Fred Yang, and our guest today, Jeff Garren, the president of Hart Research pollster for two of the most important Democratic support groups, Priorities USA and the Senate Majority PAC, as well as most every prominent Democratic top office holder. Jeff, first, thank you for being with us. I know you're stuck up in Martha's Vineyard, but I hope you're getting a good sense of the pulse of the people up there.
1: Uh, well, we are know what, uh, what the Martha Vineyarders think. <laughs>
0: uh, you know, every time that you talk to, to most Democrats these days and you Anyone exudes confidence about this November, uh, they will say, ooh, and they'll harken back to 2016. Let's not forget what happened back then. What are the differences and any similarities between Joe Biden standing today as opposed to Hillary Clinton on August 6, 2016?
1: Well, you know, for well, I think inaccurately, but, you know, but, uh, four years ago at this point, Hillary Clinton's uh, was not a trusted figure at all among Americans. People focused back then on the fact that uh, close to 60% of voters thought that uh, that Donald Trump didn't have the temperament to be president, but really didn't pay very much attention to the reality that, that nearly as many uh, people thought that uh, Hillary Clinton didn't have the honesty and integrity uh, to be president uh, again i think it's a definitely a misperception uh, uh, perception of her but um but uh, the the level of antagonism to Hillary clinton four years ago does not compare at all to voters' attitudes um to uh, joe biden today so that that's a um that's a really big difference and it, it you know this is not we're not talking about um, small numbers. We're talking about large numbers in this regard, uh, and um, you know there that uh, some polls show that uh, in his personal favorabilities, Biden is slightly below water, um, but not um, uh, by and not all polls show that, but certainly not by the margin that that uh, Secretary Clinton was, and more importantly, not with the intensity that uh, people felt about Hillary Clinton. So
0: his standing today is is considerably stronger, you would say, than hers four years ago?
1: Yes. Uh, well, I think there's uh, th- that, uh, just in terms of kind of the, how they view the two of them. Um, but I think Donald Trump is a different person um, today in the voters' minds than he was um, four years ago. That Four years ago at this point, Trump had high negatives, as he does Now, uh, people didn't like the way he comported itself and his demeanor and things of that sort. But, you know, if you wanted to be for Hillary, for Donald Trump back then, you could say to yourself, you know, this is an act that, uh, you know, the office makes the man. if Donald Trump gets elected president, he'll put the shtick aside and start to act himself, act in a kind of a presidential way. Um. And you know now, especially in the wake of the COVID crisis, nobody is under the illusion anymore that um, that you know this is not the real Donald Trump. People know who he is who he is and will never be anything uh, different. So um, you know, there's no you can't resolve your dissonance by saying oh. Well, you know, when he gets into office, he's going to change. People know that this guy doesn't change, that, um, uh, that he, you know, he, he has zero learning curve. And uh, so that, you know, that uh, uh, the people really are reckoning with the reality of, of uh, Donald Trump in a way that they weren't four years ago.
0: Let me pick up on a variation that I uh, try to absorb every poll that's out there, particularly if it has Jeff Garen or Hart uh, uh, attached to it. But I also look at a couple other things that I think in some ways are as telling. Four years ago, I think, and this picks up on your point, there were one in seven voters that didn't like Trump or Clinton. And according to Gallup on election day, 69-31, they went for Trump. Now, if you think about it, that's logical. You know, they're both bums, but why not go, you know, for the new one? There are similar surveys today that show there's a, a number of voters that don't like either one of these candidates. But they, by an overwhelming majority, prefer Biden. Again, logical. I can't take four more years of this guy. And I guess the second thing that strikes me is that I can't find, just in phone calls, you don't go out now, anyone who last time voted for Hillary, who this time say they're going to vote for Trump. And she did win the popular vote last time. I'm just struck by both of those. Is that too
1: micro? No, not well uh you know arithmetic matters uh on the first point you're you're exactly right um about just the statistical reality of people who who don't like either candidate this time um it's the devil they know who they worry uh, uh much more about and people think you know we're we're at a at a high point now, al, we've been working together for. For years and decades, so you know what the right track, wrong track numbers have been over time. We're at a high point now where people are saying the country is going in the wrong direction. So there's this impetus for for change, uh, for one thing. But um, you know, just in terms of the basic arithmetic of the election, here's uh, here's the deal, as Joe Biden would say, um, that um, at, you are right that there are very few people who voted for Hillary Clinton. Who have somehow said, "Oh, I made a mistake, and now I want to be for Donald Trump." The numbers are negligible in the in the kind of you know very low single digits. There are um, uh, you know it's not most people who voted for Donald Trump. A large majority of people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 will vote for him again in 2020. But um, the fraction who will not is larger than the than the than the people who will defect uh, the Clinton voters who will defect. To Trump the other way. Um, then you've got um, kind of a, the third party voters from 2016. Uh, and they are now much more inclined to, to choose between the two party candidates. And they are overwhelmingly inclined toward Biden. And then the biggest piece of the puzzle uh, and, the, and the most important segment of voters by my lights are the people who did not vote in 2016 at all. Um, either because they were too young or because they chose not to vote. I, I I would guess that, you know, we're looking at somewhere between, you know, around 15% of the 2020 electorate will be people who um, didn't vote in 2016. And in every poll that we've done, that group of voters is now splitting very uh, decisively for Joe Biden uh, led by young voters uh splitting uh, in an overwhelmingly a uh, large degree for 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 Vice President Biden
0: well let's turn to James Carville but I do want to point out because you noted it that for 16 years uh when I was at the Wall Street Journal I directed uh, a poll with with Jeff Guerin and Peter Hart and the late great Bob Bob Teeter it's one of the reasons I have such enormous
2: respect for Jeff Guerin James take over thank you so Jeff As I count, we've been knowing each other for 40 years, which translates into 10 presidential cycles. You've probably seen more polls than anybody in this business. What three or four things stand out about August the 6th in a presidential year this year that is unique among presidential elections that you have seen?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Uh, It's a a good question because you know there are you know part of the reason why after 40 years uh, more than 40 years i still wake up every day really excited to go to work and really interested in what i'm doing is kind of things change a lot and so there's a lot about um, this election and the way it's conducted that um, that's u- unique i'm not sure it kind of it's it that's Relates to a particular number in a poll, but uh, before I talk about uh, uh, about that, you know, people keep on hearkening back to the twenty sixteen election, and Democrats, um, you know, uh, still are, um, you know, that that you know have PTSD about um, about that election. But you know, to me, I think that we're kind of more analogous to the two thousand eight election not because people are excited about Biden in the same way they were about, um, um, uh, Obama, but because, you know, in the, in the wake of the financial crisis, people really kind of made a decision that we, you know, needed to make a change in the country. And, um, you know, the, where we are now with the coronavirus crisis is, um, it is very much like uh, where people were uh, on uh, on the financial crisis. In fact, I would say that that uh, that the situation today with the coronavirus crisis is worse for President Trump and the Republicans than the financial crisis was for President Bush, uh, Senator McCain and the Republicans back then uh, because they see uh, Trump as being so negligent and responsible. For all, how bad this has become uh, for the country, um, so that you know that's the other kind of you know very big difference from 2016 is that um, the election was not being uh, conducted against the backdrop of this you know this profound crisis that most Americans really think of as a profound crisis, uh, and most Americans say the worst of the crisis is still ahead of us, not. Uh, not behind us uh, because of Trump's failure to deal appropriately and, and um, aggressively uh, with it. Um, and so, uh, you know, as we talk about, you know, looking at elections over time, over that, that 40-year period, this is kind of a lot more like Jimmy Carter and the hostage crisis in, um, in 1980, or, or the Republican Party and the financial crisis In 2008, than it is um, in any which way compared to to uh, 20 uh, 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 2016. You know, I think James, in terms of your other question about um, about uh, you know what's unique about this election is, uh, and uh, and the data is, you know how, you know, it's a it's really the continuation of a trend. It's just how siloed people are in terms of, you know, what information they're getting and who they're getting it from. Uh, and, you know, when you and I started, there's a kind of a real such thing as a national debate that Americans were exposed to. And, you know, we're not seeing that very much at all. Um, this is kind of uh, people are are kind of hearing about the election and hearing about the candidates based on their uh, kind of what compartment they're in.
2: So one of the numbers I always look for in a poll is a self-identified ID. And since Trump has been elected, it strikes me that, you know, 2018 was a Republican disaster of epic proportions, both in terms of turnout popular vote. I was point in Florida and Ohio, but they had literally 90% of the off-the-elections, Democrats have performed way above expected performance. H- have you seen a decline in Republican identifiers during the Trump years?
1: Well, we've seen that on steroids in the last six weeks where, um, you know, one, not to get too nerdy on you here, but one of the no, we
2: we we'll do a nerdy kind of semi-nerdy show. We love nerds.
1: So one one of the things that's you know changed is that over the the way we do polling um, over time is that, that we now uh, work exclusively from voter files, where there are kind of um, modeled scores that predict whether somebody's a Democrat or a Republican, and so that um, when we do a survey, we make sure kind of in a very rigid way that our sample of completed interviews is reflective of the distribution of those predictions. doesn't mean the predictions are right, but it means our sample is consistent with, um, what, what we would expect based on the voter file. So even, you know, with that control for predicted party, we're seeing a kind of a very substantial decline in people identifying, um, with the Republican party. And, um, uh, and, and, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, if you just think of what's going on today, um, you know, right now, where we have uh, in the middle of this crisis, uh, Congress uh, has to determine what kind of um, me- measure to pass in the next uh, COVID bill. And the Republicans in the Senate are now wholly irrelevant to that, to this process. Um, you know, because there are 14 to 20 Republican senators who would never vote for anything McConnell has no and the and the Republican party is so divided. McConnell really had there's no, you know, there's no there there any longer uh for the Republican party. So this is entirely a uh Speaker Pelosi leader Schumer negotiation with um uh with the White House. And and you know the Republican party I think has really not just lost its way but lost its meaning um for for voters and you know, it's become kind of a, you know, this kind of native, well, it's become the party of Trump uh, more than anything else. And the fact that it's the party of Trump as, uh, as, you know, support for him declines, support for the Republican Party declines with it. Right. The,
2: you know, when people say, oh, James, 90% of the Republicans back Trump. And I said, look, if 90% of 41 is a hell of a lot different than 90% of 35. I mean, you can't, so what happens is, as they lose, as people go from being weak Republican to independent or independent to weak Democrat, the, the face of the electorate changes and it's less, and of course the smaller your, your, your self ID number is, the more your base or the more hardcore people are the left. And it, This is not an evenly divided country at all. There are just more people that don't like Republicans than do like Republicans. And it's not very close. And that's just one of the things that drives me crazy when people just say, well, we're evenly divided as a country. We're not.
1: We we definitely are not. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, and and it's not just, uh, you know, party identification. Um, One question that we asked with Al uh, way back when, but uh, at NBC, uh, Wall Street Journal poll, and uh, continue to ask is, do you want government to be doing more or less? And uh, the the Republicans have always been the party of less, leaving more things up to businesses and individuals. Uh, And we are now very decidedly in a country of, of wanting government to do more, to be more active in solving problems. Uh, facing the country today, so it's not just the kind of the party identifications, but it's also what what the what the party uh, represents. And James, just in terms of you know thinking about the arithmetic of what you were saying, you could think of well, you know what's happened is you had somebody who identified as a kind of Republican a year ago, who now when you ask them say, "I'm an independent," but you you might think that you know because that's a former Republican. Um, they're still conservative and still more inclined to vote for uh, Democratic candidates, even though we have kind of a different composition of the independent vote than we had previously. The independent vote right now is still far more uh, pro-Biden um, than uh, than it was pro-Clinton in 2016.
0: Jeffrey, let me, when you talk about those Democratic I think false, as you have pointed out, nightmares about the two thousand and sixteen analogy um, uh, Secretary Clinton, of course, won that popular vote, so it's the electoral college that throws people in some kind of a tizzy. I think first of all, I think that was an aberration last time, some of it some of it frankly due to the Clinton campaign's miscalculations. But let's just go through a couple of the important subsets and and see how they stand today. First of all, there's the blue wall, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, that cracked four years ago and cost the Democrats the election. How do those states look today?
1: Uh, Trump is substantially behind in all of them. I mean, you know, there's some variation in the um, some of the public polls that are somewhere in that has to do with the polls themselves as opposed to the reality on the ground but um you know uh, you know in terms of the work that we're doing uh, in our um, internal private polling and what what you see in the public polls um, uh biden has had a solid stable lead in all three states um you know Michigan and Pennsylvania are kind of I think um, are you know becoming more solidly for Biden Wisconsin which is you would have thought would have been the kind of most tenuous of the three also has been you know not by kind of huge numbers but consistently uh advantaged to Biden uh so kind of on on those three states which president Trump won by collective 77,000 votes um in 2016 it's hard to see um you know, that, uh, 77,000 votes, uh, you know, carrying him through uh, to victory across those three states this time.
0: That would be game, set, match. Let me, let me, let me turn to the changing South, uh, Sunbelt, North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Arizona.
1: Well, um, I don't think they're all in the same category. Uh, but the fact that, uh, I think Arizona is, um, a little bit better than the others in terms of um, the possibility or probability of Biden carrying them. Uh, I, Biden is ahead in North Carolina, uh, but North Carolina will be competitive. And you know the fact that we're talking about Georgia and Texas as competitive states just speaks volumes. And um, uh, and you know those are you know very close races and. You know i think campaigns are you know vice president biden's uh his campaigns decided to invest in in those states i think there's good reason to think that they're winnable but they're they're you know the, the you know uh the fact that they're even competitive now i think is kind of reflective of what terrible shape the republican party is in and uh but also the changing nature of the electorate uh, in uh, in those states, you know, uh, Texas is uh, you know a place where the weakness of Republicans among suburban voters uh, is really coming uh, to haunt them now. And uh, and remember, uh, you know, the other big thing about Texas is how hard it's been hit. By the coronavirus crisis, uh, and um, where they now feel in a very personal way um, that uh, that you know that their state has been a victim of the too little, too late approach of President Trump, the kind of the the urging people to uh, reopen the economy even when it wasn't safe to do that. So, uh, a state's experience with COVID is important. A colleague of mine uh, named Jesse Steinbring, who's a a really smart young um, analyst, uh, kind of um, emailed me yesterday about the correlation between uh, a state's experience with COVID and the strength or weakness of President Trump. And as more states are having more um, serious COVID experiences, uh, it's taking a toll on President Trump and other Republicans.
0: Well, Jeff. I mean, I think James James has got a lot to pick up on this. But just finally, those states that were we thought were irredeemably red—Ohio and Missouri—is Biden the ideal candidate in those two places? Uh,
1: I I think he is. I mean, relative to um, uh, to President Trump, I think the comparison uh, is uh, is good. That uh, I think there's a comfort level with um, with Biden among uh, suburban voters who are. You know, Missouri yesterday passed an uh, expansion of of uh, of Medicaid, um, driven by uh, votes around the Kansas City metropolitan area and the St. Louis metropolitan area, uh, and then sort of some you know competitive results um, in uh, in other parts of the state. And so I think Joe Biden is able to both kind of maximize support in those kind of metro areas and uh, you know, while still being uh, relatable to uh, many uh, kind of working class voters, uh, too?
2: I got a, I was like a sleeper. You know, my sleeper this cycle, I actually got two, Alaska Senate and Missouri governor. That, you know, races that just don't pop right into people's minds right away. You got a couple of sleepers out there that might not be, you know, on the national headlines, but it, Democratic candidates that you think are going to do better than people anticipate?
1: Well, I definitely um, I think those two are really smart. um, uh, Smart uh, uh, choices, I think, uh, you know, uh, even if um, Trump wins Georgia narrowly, I think John Ossoff is going to give David Perdue a hell of a good race in um, in Georgia um, you know if there's a if there's a real wave I'm not predicting that there will be but I certainly think that that is a possibility uh you know we're we're going to um, I think we're gonna you know see some upsets you know one uh, this is not an individual race but here's kind of a sleeper prediction um, that uh, that I think there's a decent chance that, um, that the Democrats will expand their majority in the House as opposed to have their majority be contracted, which is something that nobody thought possible at the beginning of this cycle. Um, I'm not certain that that's going to happen, but it's a lot more likely now that that could happen than it was six months ago or, um, or a year ago. And, um, you know, uh, uh, uh pe- you know, people were, I think some people were fretting about, you know, and, uh, and the, uh, and the Republicans were threatening, uh, you know, about what the, uh, impact of, of impeachment would be on house Democrats. You know, the short answer to that is zero, um, uh, zero negative impact. I think some, actually some positive impact, but, um, you know I, and you know you know there are some um, Republicans uh, Democrats running in, in, in kind of Trump districts that will be hard pressed. Um, things that were narrowly Trump districts in 2016, I think Democrats are going to do really well in those House races and even in the ones that were larger Trump victories in 2016 where it's now represented by a Democrat, I think most of those Democrats will will also win. So, um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, despite the imbalance in seats, the Republicans are having more retirements in the house. So, um, uh, so I think Democrats have a good chance of winning the Senate and they have a good chance of, of expanding their majority in the house, uh, which is, I think kind of an extraordinary state of affairs. Thank you,
2: Albert.
0: Well. I- yeah, I was going to say, I just have gone over the House races with some experts, Jeff. There are, by I don't know, maybe by a margin of a half dozen or more, more Republican-held seats in play today than there are Democratic seats in play. I mean, that really is kind of stunning. You don't expect that when a party has a majority. There are, I would guess, well over a dozen Republican seats in play, and there are, you know, maybe five or six Democratic-held seats. That's it uh are places they thought they were really in good, you know, they were going to come and they're going to win back. Mikey Sherrill in uh, New Jersey and Jason Crow out in Colorado uh, and uh, uh, Lucy McBath down in Georgia, where, where they're not even very competitive. It's just stunning. Let me ask you this. Uh, this has been a very upbeat uh, assessment of where Democrats, where Joe Biden stands. What keeps you awake at night? What worries you? If the Biden people were to say, okay. In these next, whatever it is now, thirteen weeks, what do you think they're going to do? How they're going to come after us? Where might we be vulnerable? What should we be prepared for?
1: Well, I mean, there are things that we're looking at in our research. You know, what uh, you know, if uh, we have uh, some evidence of a substantial economic recovery between now and the election, we're trying to understand what the impact of that will be. I don't think that that's going to happen at, the, at this stage. Um, and um, one, of the, one of the really interesting results and important results we've found in that regard is that, you know, we ask people to imagine a scenario where President Trump has been able to lower the unemployment rate in, in the United States from, you know, a high of 19.3 percent down to 8 or 9 percent in October. Um, so, you know, evidence of substantial progress there, but also imagine at the same time, the number of fatalities, we asked this not so long ago when it was uh, about 120,000 fatalities. Now we're already uh, well above 150,000 fatalities, but at the same time that the unemployment rate is going down to eight or 9%, that the number of deaths is increased to 200,000, uh, people. And, you know, how would they feel in that? in that circumstance and by close to two to one people said that's not that's not a good bargain for america i would think of that as a failure rather than a success if we get unemployment that low but the fatalities are that high but still we're trying to understand the impact of um of um of you know a recovering economy if that indeed occurs we're trying to understand the impact of you know if President Trump is able to make some um, uh, 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 dramatic announcement of kind of a, a vaccine. Um, you know how will people react to that? Um, so you know, I, I think this is um, it. You know, it, it it it's not structural questions that worry me so much. It's not you know, are the, are, are, are is the Trump campaign oh, all of a sudden, going to hit on a really smart strategy um, that doesn't worries me so much. Although um, you know, I think they're um, you know I, I don't you know take you know take take that for granted uh, that they won't. But uh, the problem the the problem is they've got Trump. You know, it's 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 really about events. I think it you know that. Uh, you know, it will take events for things to uh, to change the election. And um, so as opposed to something about the structure of the race or some tactical or strategic decision that one campaign or the other makes.
2: So, Jeff, my advice to any of your clients is this. It's time for a change. You know, 80 percent wrong track country. Change is the greatest word in the English language. For an out party in a three-to-one wrong track country.
1: Uh, well, I think you're right. That's my view. I, I think you're right, and um, you know, I, I also think that uh, you know the 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 uh, we, we we've had change. You know, it's people thought in 2016 it was a time for change, and part of the reason why Donald Trump got elected back then. Now they kind of feel that even more powerfully. So, so you're definitely right about that, and for Um, you know, Democrats obviously have to kind of represent the, the, you know, that change. Um, but I think, you know, the extension of that, James, is not just that we need a change, but that in every way imaginable, President Trump and the Republicans are changing things for the worse. They're making things worse than they needed to be or had to be. And it's not just on COVID, but, um, but on that for sure that, uh, that, that, that um, that on COVID, President Trump is made things is making things worse on the economic impacts of of uh, the COVID crisis. He's making things worse in terms of people's access to affordable health care um, that they can rely on. He's making things worse uh, on even on in terms of the you know the the uh, the unity of the country and what's going on with protests. Okay, he's uh, he's making things worse. So it's not just that we need a change and that the Democrats need to represent that. But in 2020, there's a very specific case, is that on the things that are most important to America and Americans right now, Donald Trump and the Republican Party are consistently making things worse and that we need to elect Democrats to turn that around and turn, and turn the country around.
0: The one thing we know is Jeff Guerin is consistently good. Jeff, Peter Hart trained you well. Uh, we can't thank you enough for being with us. Please give our best to Debbie and uh, stay safe up there in the People's Republic of the Mar- of Martha's Vineyard.
1: I will do. Thank you for having me.
0: The riches of the land. Uh, Jim Tankersley's book with compelling personal stories and convincing data about how America built a robust middle class in the generation after World War II with not just white workers but, but also people of color and then sadly how it has eroded. Jim is the chief economics writer for the New York Times and has covered politics and economic policies for more than a decade and a half. Jim, thanks for being with us.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure, thank you so much.
0: You write that politicians, but particularly Donald Trump, have conned the middle class, some playing to racial and cultural divisions, while workers are falling further and further behind, sometimes working two or three jobs, not just to get even further behind.
3: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a tragedy. The, the decline of the American middle class, even before uh, this pandemic recession, which it uh, turns out to have been the second once-in-a-lifetime uh, recession of my lifetime uh, thus far. Um, even before then, the middle class was stagnating. Uh, it was not uh, enjoying anywhere close to the gains that it had made uh, in the late 1990s or, or particular in, in the period after World War II. And and I think the con that populist populist politicians have pulled on American workers is this idea that um, the only way to get back is by cracking down on immigrants, by, by cracking down on Uh, trade, um, through sort of a set of policies that are designed to, uh, in one way or the other, restrict certain groups of people um, from contributing to the economy. And and my argument is the opposite, that history shows us the reason we had a vibrant uh, middle-class boom after World War II was because all workers really got ahead, Um, not just white men, but in particular women and uh, men of color had been shut out of the great opportunities of the U.S. economy for centuries. And after World War II, they began to demand entry into much better jobs. And when they got those better jobs and contributed their talents to the economy, the entire economy boomed. And and that was why we had such a great period for the middle class. And and really, with the exception of the late 90s, why we haven't had one since – And so um, I think that the the real recipe uh, is to re-empower those those workers, women and and men of color and immigrants, and and then everyone will get ahead, including white men. And um, that's not the story you hear so often from populist politicians today.
0: Jim, let me ask you, because Donald Trump, pre-pandemic, claimed no one has done as much for African-Americans. They were doing better economically. Uh, and wage-wise in any time in history. What are the facts?
3: Well, the facts are that you know Donald Trump inherited an economy that had been finally starting to work for everyone. And what we know, Al, about uh, black workers in American history is they tend to um, be hurt first by recessions and recover last. It's just the sad truth of discrimination in our economy. And um, we had a long road to recovery uh, from the Great Recession, we were finally getting to a place where, where it was really starting to deliver for Black workers, and um, you know, in the final years of Barack Obama's presidency, the Black unemployment rate was falling faster than it actually did under Trump. But you know, it's the old expression: "Born on third base, think you hit a triple." Trump comes into office with a four point seven percent unemployment rate and um, and a real uh, couple of year. Set of momentum on uh, on improvements for workers that come with a tighter labor market toward the end of an economic cycle. And so he's claimed credit for the you know the levels basically that the economy reached when he came in. when if you just look at rates of change, how fast the economy grew, how fast incomes were going up for most people, um, his economy is basically indistinguishable from the second term of Obama or even the second term of George W. Bush. So his great um, achievement economically has been selling Americans on the idea that what he did was special as opposed to the conditions he inherited were special.
0: How much, you know, let me let me go again to this overarching point about the decline. How much of it uh, middle class class, how much of it is attributable to the decline of labor unions? Labor unions back in the 50s were about 35% of the workforce. I think it's less than 15 now. How much of it is due to the decline of labor unions?
3: I think that it's certainly a, a real part of the story. Um, I mean, labor unions, of course, have had uh, an interesting um, role in American history. At times, they have been exclusionary forces. You know, they they excluded certain workers and kept them from getting good jobs. But at other times, they've been uh, major forces for inclusion and forces for bargaining power. And I think that is – bargaining power is clearly something American workers have not had for in very um, – long supply for decades and again it only at the times of really low unemployment when when you have a low unionization rate it's only when the labor market's really tight um that workers can demand raises to the degree that you know they had in the past and so um you know what we had in in the late 90s was a scenario where the economy was growing really fast with really low unemployment which i think is sort of the recipe for for broadly shared prosperity and so it didn't matter as much. But then when you have higher unemployment or slower growth, um, workers who do not have bargaining power definitely found that they were not able to get wage gains while corporate profits were rising.
2: So, Jim, I've written, first of all, congratulations on a book and weaving these narratives a really interesting thing. But the first thing when I see one of these books I do is I go to the last chapter where you talk about solutions. And you actually did a much better job than most. I mean, you honestly called around. You got ideas. what ideas that stick out in your mind of things that we could do to help reverse this. What's obviously happening to a vast number of Americans and have been happening to them for quite a while.
3: Well, so I think there's basically two buckets of things. One is sort of things policymakers can do right now. And it's just such a great question. Um, you know, I, I think women are such a key to our economy. They are, uh, they are statistically our highest skilled, best educated workers right now in, in the country. And, and yet they are still um, struggling to participate in the labor force to the degree that they used to. So I think a, a big suite of policies to remove the impediments women have to working and getting ahead. And that, that starts with childcare. There's just so much uh, that, that, that sort of our social norms hold women back because, and we see it in the pandemic right now, there are millions of women who are unable to work at all or work as much as they want because they are being forced to care for children at home with, with school not being open. Um, and we don't have a good public policy solution for that, even in regular times, let alone in the pandemic. So I think it starts there. I think, you know, I, I, I propose a few kind of radical things in there. I think our elite universities should have to admit far more students, um, Stanford's and Harvard's and Yale's of the world, and, and they should be really focusing on low-income, low, you know, students from low-opportunity areas, from disadvantaged backgrounds, and, and so we can be just, you know, really churning out more high-quality graduates. But, James, I think actually the other the other thing which is much harder – that we need is almost like a national attitudinal shift. We need to agree, all of us, that um, we don't we don't want workers fighting with each other anymore, and and, and that and that racism and sexism are, aren't just bad for women or for men of color. They're bad for everyone. And, and if we could get this sort of national agreement that, hey, we're really going to try to complete the work of civil rights, which was left unfinished. I actually think that would be the greatest economic policy we could have. And that's, that's not something you can pass through a law. That's something we all kind of have to um, decide on a community and individual level, and we need real leadership for.
2: So I, I entered the workforce late. It was 29, 1973. I just graduated in Moscow. There was one African-American in my class and three women. I didn't know what a BMW or Sony TV was. Germany and Japan were still digging out. China was being led by a madman, right? That's not the world that someone, that's not the workforce that someone is entering today. And I know I had a law degree, but but just take it in general. I mean, the world is just a much, much more competitive place. And I, I don't, you know, of course I'm from more, Unions, I think Warren's federal daycare is the single best proposal maybe to come out of 2020 cycle. But there is a, we just don't live in the same world when we had these growing wages and we had, you know, six, seven percent GDP growth. And I don't think that's going to come back.
3: So, so I mean, I agree. It's a totally different world. And I think part of what's happened is that those changes have advantaged, you know, particular sets of workers who kind of control the institutions, the, the business world. I mean, CEOs remain predominantly white men from elite universities. Um, you know, the, the finance industry remains dominated by white men. So so the changes in the economy that have uh, helped corporate America and, and multinational companies and have helped Wall Street have, have disproportionately helped those workers you know, I I think about this a lot. I I, I lay out in the book, I I got interested in middle class questions, you know, when I was a kid, long before I entered the workforce, because I grew up in a timber town in in Western Oregon, where the the guys I went to high school with, so many of them, you know, their dads worked in or around the timber industry. And those jobs, when they cratered in the 80s and 90s, just weren't going to be available to the guys I went to school with. And I wanted to know, you know, when is this changing world going to start working for those guys and it's of course it's not just those guys it's it's um, black men and, and and you know women from uh, rural areas across the country and and cities and suburbs but it um the idea the question of when will this new economy create good paying jobs for those workers is sort of consumed me in my entire time as a as an economics reporter and I've just really come to this conclusion that there they really have the potential to contribute it is a more competitive world, it is one that advantages people with higher education. But I, I truly believe there is potential in the American workforce that is untapped that if we just get the right entrepreneurs um creating companies that use, you know, human labor in new and interesting ways, that good jobs can reappear. We just we just haven't found those combinations yet.
2: So you did mention, and I just twice, so I want to point it out for a third time, that we did have across the board, income growth in the late 90s, which is probably the the apex of what's happened in this country since the early 70s. Am I correct?
3: Oh, absolutely. And who was president in the late 90s? That was the Bill Clinton presidency. I think you may remember that.
2: It is verboten to say anything good about the Clinton presidency. I just wanted to point that out.
3: No, I think, you know, I have a stat in the book that um, I had to check like six times because I, I, I barely believed it, James. But if you if we had continued um, through this century, um, since 2000, with the income growth uh, that we had in the second term of the Clinton presidency, the median American family, the American middle class today, would be earning 50% more than it's earning now. I mean, it's just a dramatic drop-off that we've had. Since the end of the Clinton presidency,
2: Thank you, Justice Scalia.
3: Well, I, I think you know we also had a bursting tech bubble, and, and then and then you know the China shock really did uh, that that started um, that you know to be fair was ushered in in part by Clinton policies uh, did take away a lot of uh, good jobs in America.
2: It did. That, that's that's fair, and it, and, and it came back. Obama had TPP, and that would have helped a lot. But of course, we didn't do that. But we were we were in pretty good shape in two thousand.
3: We were no, we were we were in great shape.
0: You know, the other thing, I mean, your book is just fascinating in the way it chronicles this all. You know, I mean, it's happened, Jim, but it also has some wonderful personal portraits.
3: Tell us about Ed Green. Oh, man. Um, you know, I I, uh, I feel... I feel like, uh, you know, you're a reporter, and and my favorite stories are always the stories where I get to just get out in the world and and talk to folks who are working in their jobs about how the economy affects them. And I've met a lot of wonderful people in my career, but I've probably never met anyone as extraordinary as Ed. Um, He's he's a guy from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, um, and I met him in the fall of 2013, on the last day of the minor league baseball season in Winston-Salem. And uh, he came ambling down the concourse, a very tall black man, uh, shook my hand. Uh, He was basically like, I think, the 12th or the 13th hour of his workday. He got up every morning, laid tar on the highway for the state, and then he worked a second job every night doing custodial service in, in the in the summer for the baseball team in the winter for wake forest uh, football and and basketball and he it was is just a soft spoken, thoughtful very kind man who works his butt off every day still does and uh and does it because he wants to give his family the sort of middle-class life that you used to be able to get with one job and ed has to do it with two with two jobs or now he's down to a, a job and a half he's he's, um, ramped down just a little bit, but, um, and
0: sometimes I, it's been three,
3: sometimes three. Yep. And, uh, and so I've just, I wrote about him, um, that, uh, the following year and then I've just stayed in touch with him and, uh, I got to meet his family and, and tell their story. And I went back down last summer to talk to him and, and we talked about how hard it is to, to work in, in all those jobs and what it does to you. And he never complains, you know, he got cancer and never missed a day of work, even with treatment. Um, just an extraordinary example of the spirit of the American worker. And yet the economy is still not working for him. And he's worried that it's 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 not working for his kids who who he worked hard to send to college. And, and his kids are, are just wonderful, you know, adults now. And, um, you know, I just feel really lucky to have had the chance to tell his story. And, and it's sort of the backbone of the book. His family... Uh, his His parents embody the great middle class surge of of the post war era, and then his own story embodies kind of the the downfall of the middle class since then
0: well there are many reasons to read this book, but I want everyone who does to really really look i mean, read read about ed green he's a remarkable character. Co- did he get his college degree while he was working these two and three jobs
3: he is not yet it's his goal for when he's uh for when he's done, he 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 wants to go back and not just get a college degree, he, uh, James. He wants to get a law degree. Um, yeah. uh, when it's all over, uh, he, he he wants to basically help. He wants to do sort of labor law and help uh, workers like himself, uh, you know, navigate the, the the difficulties of the workforce. Now,
2: you know, the sad thing is, is the law degree is pretty really expensive now. My tuition was a hundred and ten dollars a semester. I used to I'd work okay. offshore had like $5,000 in my pocket and I was on the GI bill. I got $300 a month. I was in the early seventies. I was so flush. It was unbelievable. But now these kids graduated from law school and they got $150,000 worth of debt. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really tough.
3: No, we've made it really hard for um, young people to, to get the education they need to even just compete for the for the you know medium-paying jobs anymore. I mean, that's that's just a sad fact of our economy.
0: Well, I know I know a little bit about a certain university in Winston-Salem, and I'm going to strongly recommend that they contact uh, Mr. Green because he'd be a great asset, whatever uh, he can do for them. But boy, it's a, it's an incredible story, Jim.
3: Well thank you guys so much for uh letting me uh ramble on about it I, I um I feel very passionately about the people in the book and and about the themes and um and I think we, we you know we're in a moment in America where we're we're rebuilding the economy again and we do have a have some choices to make and if we choose to invest in each other and not just uh you know snipe at each other, well, maybe we got a shot. maybe we could do this
0: well, as james asked you uh you you spell out some of the things we can do in taking advantage of. Of that shot. And I would encourage all of our listeners to read The Riches of the Land by Jim Tankersley, who is as good an economics reporter as there is in Washington today. Uh, now that my buddy Dave Wessel has left, uh, Jim, I may even crown you as the best. But um, it's just—it's—it's uh, it's a terrific book. And thank you for being with us.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: Good luck to you, Jim. It's a great book, great effort. You should be very proud of it.
3: Thank you, James. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, boy, that was, you know, that, that
2: was a good show, James. It really was. You know, I want to talk about something, and Jim, people are over to this, about these massive endowments that these schools have. Harvard, Stanford, MIT, I mean, you pick it, right? Even but one of the ideas is that they expand enrollment. Okay, so let's just say a thousand more come in. What I think they should do is get together and use the endowment to... In, you know, their expertise to make some of these community colleges better. I mean, you can you can educate masses of people at Dade County or Northern Virginia Community College or King's Community College in Seattle. And I think there's more bang for the buck improving that level of education than just churning out more elite school graduates. I mean, I really think there's more bang for the whole economy.
0: Uh, amen. You know, I mentioned Dave Wessel a minute ago. 20 years ago, he and Bob Davis wrote a book about community colleges as the engine of economic growth in America and the early part of the 21st century. It was right on. And James, one of the tragedies, and this has been done largely at the state level, but the feds bear some responsibility, we have cut back on assistance to community colleges. Yeah. And that that is a terribly dumb, short-term decision. They are great investments.
2: Yeah, I'd like to see some of these big endowment schools say, hey, we're going to help and we're going to, you know, we're going to assign faculty, we're going to look at your programs. You know, if there's an electrician training program at Dade County where maybe an MIT, you know, electrical engineer can take a look at it and say, hey, these are 10 things you can do and whatever, boom, boom, boom.
0: I mean, the healthcare industry in America, which is so under resourced right now, basically depends on community colleges uh, for their workforce. You cannot be an auto mechanic today unless you have at least a level 14 education, which is community college. So you, you, you're right. That is a-
2: I just, I just, yeah, we'll have to see a bigger focus on that, but well, what a show.
0: It was a great show. Before we go, uh, our erstwhile our producer, Jeremiah said, just tell people. Uh, just briefly at the end, what you're watching, what you're reading. Uh, James, I'm watching baseball. I'm watching the Washington Nationals because I've missed it so much. Uh, And when a game, it may not matter. They're only four and four. I'm not at all confident the season will continue. But when it comes on, I say, Hosanna, here it is. Uh, And I usually watch it until the end of the ninth inning. Last night it was the seventh because of rain. And reading, I did a lot of work reading. I wanted to read Jim's book this week. I read your colleague Paul Begala's book because I'm doing uh, something with him. I read the Mary Trump book because someone said you ought to read it. It was okay. And my favorite book of this week is Christopher Buckley's Make Russia Great Again, the novel about about uh, Donald Trump. I guarantee if anyone reads it, you will laugh for two solid hours. So tell us what you've been doing.
2: Well, I, I'm reading Burning the House Down. we're uh, be discussing that about the, the Gingrich revolution and it was crazier than I remember. And for fiction, my friend, Daniel Silver has, a, and I'm a big Daniel Silver guy, has a new book called the order, which is as much fun as I've had reading a piece of fiction in, in a long time. Put it that way. And it's, it's, uh, it's fiction, but it's, it's very educational and very thought provoking is everything that, that Dan Silva writes is. You know, I'm a big fan of his, and I'm really a big fan of his newest book.
0: Oh, he's a really, really talented writer, and uh, you know, as is as is Chris Buckley, he's got a carry. He's got he's got a character. The uh, and you can guess who this is, James. It's the senior senator from South Carolina who once was a harsh Trump critic, who's turned into a sycophant, and his name is Squiggly Lee Biscuit. Now, I don't know who that could be, but I'll tell you, uh, this really was. I I love this show. I love those two guests. I learned a lot. That's what we're all about. Uh, and uh, I just want to thank everybody out there for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. I hope you'll follow the show on Twitter at Politics War Room. Uh, I hope James's dog will follow the show. Yeah. I hope you'll email us at politicswarroom at gmail.com. That's Room at gmail.com. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate the show, hopefully with a five-star review. We'll be back next week. We've got another good guest right on the eve of the Democratic Convention, such as it is. So everybody be safe out there. James, you be safe out there.
2: I got a new, I got a new
0: slogan for the show. We got Bark. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, all right. He's going to be our special guest most weeks, okay? All right. <laughs> all right. Thank you and be safe.